Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 79 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today, we will be speaking to Michael Kelly. He is a surf and sup coach, an REI outdoor school instructor, and a scoutmaster. But that is not all. He has competed both as a cyclist and as a sup racer. He and I got together late last year at Will Rogers State Park to talk about all of those topics, but also to go in depth about what it's like to be a leader, an educator, and the benefits of being a beginner. So let's go talk to Michael Kelly. My name is Michael Kelly. I work for REI as an outdoor school instructor. I also teach stand-up paddleboard racing and touring through my website, subcoach.net. Outside of that, you work as motion graphics artist for TV and film, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've decided on your own to make this a side career, right? Where you are also teaching people to surf and stand-up paddleboard. Let's go back in time a little before all that and find out how you ended up at those activities. What brought you there? And I believe you also were a cyclist. So let's discuss the history of little Michael up to big Michael now. So I grew up in Malibu in Zuma area. We were talking about Zuma before. Growing up surfing, boogie boarding on the beach, and it was a great place to grow up. I always say I grew up in the poor section of Malibu, which is kind of relative, but it was a great childhood to grow up. And when I was in high school, we moved to Orange County to Newport Beach area. Again, the poor section of Newport Beach, which is relative. And I was surfing pretty seriously in Newport Beach. I was competing in surfing. I was the captain of the surf team and traveling. That was a great way to go through high school is surfing with your buddies and traveling all over the place. And while I was in high school, I wanted to train for surfing. So I started riding bikes for cross training and I really loved cycling. This was before the 84 Olympics and there was a lot of hype around that. So I started really getting into bike racing. In fact, I stopped surfing and just focused on bike racing from then on. And so for the next 20 years, I was a pretty serious cyclist. I raced in Europe. I went to the Olympic Training Center and trained there for a while. I was racing mountain bikes and road cycling for the next 20 years. I had a lot of friends who got hit by cars and accidents and stuff riding around and I was really kind of burnt out on That's on really the most frightening cycling. part, right? <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, we're doing this thing that's really fun out there. We're out there mm-hmm. having fun. It's a weekend thing. It's not like we're curing cancer or going off to war and it shouldn't be that dangerous. It should be a question if you're coming back or not. So again, I have a family now and I just was really getting kind of spooked by all the accidents happening out there on the road and I wanted to try something new and I have two sons, teenagers, they're 17 and 15 and we were surfing now and I thought, you know, what? I want to start surfing more. So I started surfing with them and then I started getting into stand-up paddleboarding, and I thought, this is great. This is like surfing and racing and bike racing all at once. So I started getting seriously into stand-up paddleboard racing, and that's when I decided, hey, I want to teach. I want to teach the scouts. I'm involved with my sons are Boy Scouts. I'm a Boy Scout leader. We do high adventure trips every summer. We go to backpacking and canoe camping and all the different fun skills that's involved with scouts. And I thought, hey, I want to teach these scouts how to do stand-up paddleboarding. I found a class that REI was teaching on how to be a stand-up paddleboard instructor, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this class. Wait, so they had a class on how to be specific? 
specifically an instructor for right. stand-up paddleboard? Come to find out, the class was put on the schedule because they needed to train a bunch of their staff on how to be certified. Because they uh, just didn't have enough. They right? didn't have enough, yeah. And so they put this out and opened to the public, but it was really meant for the internal staff to be trained to be a stand-up paddleboard instructor. So I just happened to get in on this internal REI class for the outdoor school people. And while there, I met the outdoor school people and we did the class and it was like, this is great. I learned a ton. It was a whole different thing. And I spoke to the managers there and I said, hey, do you think I could do this? I'm kind of old, but I do all these sports, you know, like I surf and I cycle and I backpack. And they said, yeah, you should apply. This is perfect. Even though you don't have any experience in outdoor education business, I've been doing that my whole life with scouts and taking people out with my kids. So I applied and sure enough, this was about four years ago and they hired me as an outdoor school instructor. And so they taught me how to teach outdoor education. So now I teach mostly stand-up paddleboarding. I do kayaking. I do mountain biking. In fact, I'm going to be here at Will Rogers State Park on Saturday doing our first mountain biking class here, which will be fun. And then I also teach backcountry navigation, map and compass, GPS navigation. In the store, I'll teach how to tie knots. Like at the Santa Monica REI store, I teach how to pack a backpack. Really kind of fun stuff. And I would say it's like Boy Scouts for adults. Yeah, one of the things that I think is great about a lot of those programs is a number of them are free, a number of them are inexpensive. They can be kind of like a nice doorway for people who have an excuse of, well, I don't know anything about what backpack to get or how to do this. And it's like, well, you can go to this kind of introductory class so that they can suck you in and and then you can develop from there however you need to. So something I find interesting based on what you've told us so far is cycling Mm -hmm. was sort of an accident. Mm -hmm. It was something you accidentally fell into and then it became a large portion of your life. Mm -hmm. And then teaching to a certain degree is kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. You saw this course, took it, and then now you accidentally have become an outdoor instructor. Surfing seems to be a different situation. You grew up in Malibu where it had to be readily available. Mm -hmm. So is that something that your family got you into? Is that something Mm -hmm. that friends got you into? How'd you decide to go out into the ocean and get on a board first time? The cool thing is I'm the youngest of seven. So my older brother- That is a lot of That's a lot of kids. Yeah. (laughs) That's why we moved to Malibu because it was That's why you're in the relatively poor section all those kids to take care of. And a little side story. So this was back in the 60s. My father couldn't afford to live in Santa Monica. So this is when Malibu was being developed. And so this is north of Zuma at Trancus and Malibu West. And they couldn't sell the houses. And so those were the least expensive houses there in these housing developments. The Ford Mustang had just come out. So they were giving new owners a brand new Ford Mustang. So my dad was like, yeah, we're going to move there. We're going to move the whole family there. And sure enough, he had an awesome 1966 Ford Mustang that he drove around. But the cool thing was my older brother was the lifeguard at our local beach. We had a little beach club and a local lifeguard. And my brother was a lifeguard and I would just hang out in the lifeguard tower with him all day and be body surfing with him. And this was before boogie boards. I would be on a raft. Mm-hmm. And then he was a big time surfer there. And so he would take me to all the different surf spots around Malibu. And I was like the little brother and I would just tag along. Well, What was the age difference between all of you? 12 12 years difference. So the oldest is 12 older than you and then everyone's in between. Right, yeah. I was a big mistake, so yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Me as well, so uh, So. (laughs) so mistakes unite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was a great way to to grow up, surfing, and I was spearfishing, I was sailing, catamarans, and so it was just, that's what you did, just hung out on the beach all day and ran around, so. Yeah, so how did that develop as you got older? Because you're one of those people who have grown up native to the area where all the opportunities of these sort were part of your life, so you didn't have to discover them, per se, so. So it would be unfair of me to ask you, what was that like versus not having that? Because of course you wouldn't know, but you've begun to teach people who are finding it later in life. Mm. What are you noticing there? Like what has that opened your eyes to in the difference between say your childhood and what a lot of people in the U.S.'s childhood is like? Mm -hmm. 
I really get a kick out of seeing some of these moms that surf. There's a whole group of moms that come down to the beach with their boogie boards that they're surfing, and they have a great time. I always say surfing is the most fun sport you can do, but it's the hardest sport to learn. It takes years even to get halfway decent, and it takes a commitment to be in the water every day and to learn how to surf. By learning how to teach and by taking beginners surfing and stand-up paddleboarding, it's kind of humbled me on wow, you know, it's scary. And people don't know. I mean, for me, it's just instinct. You just do it. So it's learning how to empathize and learning how to like see, oh yeah, that person has never done this before. Mm -hmm. They're really scared or they really need to be taken through step by step. It's been kind of eye-opening for me. And I always have to keep remembering that. And part of that is I like learning new things too. I like to go back and become a beginner at something and learn something new. And that helps me with being an instructor and teaching when somebody pulls up and it's like, I've never done this before. And so I was like, okay, I get it. They're afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. And so let's make them comfortable and take them through step by step. It's interesting, right? Because you were younger, what, 10 years old, nine years old, whatever you were, and your risk assessment concepts were probably so drastically mm. different. I remember just at that age going to Florida where the waves are considerably smaller and I would just get beat to death by mm. them and thought it was a great time. Mm -hmm. And now at 41, I might go out into something similar and then have a sensation, oh, I might drown mm -hmm. today, which is not a thought right. I would have had at all at right. nine years old. The whole thing, again, with surfing, uh, you know, I've taught my kids how to surf and with REI, we take people through the surf on stand-up paddle boards mm -hmm. and kayaks. The idea of taking somebody new through the surf zone is nerve-wracking, but what I love about it is you're on your own. Like I try to explain to manage expectations with my students at REI or with my surf students and with my kids is, look, once we get in the surf zone, once we're paddling out, we can talk a lot about the timing, we can look at the waves, we can talk about the sets, but once we start paddling out, we're all on our own. Like, I can't hold your hand. Right, it's right. not a ride at Disneyland. You're not just getting on and the bar's mm -hmm. coming down and you're gonna go through and it's gonna be all good. We don't know. If for some reason you get knocked down by a wave, relax. That's part of the fun. It's gonna happen and you just gotta roll with it and be smart and safe. But once you're in the surf zone, you're on your own. The more time you spend in the surf zone, in the surf, the more knowledge you have, the more comfortable you're gonna be. Even with my surf clients now, it's like, hey, look, the waves are bad. Let's just have fun in the surf. Like, who cares? Let's paddle out. Let's paddle in. Let's practice. Let's get pounded. And let's just be comfortable in the surf zone. It can be challenging with people that are used to not falling off or not being in the water or having mm -hmm. everything happen perfect. When they do inevitably fall off in the ocean, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's a, it's a horrible thing. It's a fail. And so what I try to work on is managing that expectation of, hey, look, once we're in there, who knows what's going to happen? We hope it's going to happen great, but if you fall in the water, that's okay. Today is the day to make those mistakes. Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, so we're here and, you know, fall off the correct way, fall off towards the ocean, not towards the beach, or have your hand up. You know, be smart about it, but just have fun. You were mentioning people's expectations mm -hmm. coming in, so I'm sure you get people who have grown up around beaches who want to learn and people who have spent almost no time mm -hmm. near beaches and thought, oh, that'd be an interesting thing to learn. So what are some of those expectations people have or maybe misconceptions that you often see when people first come in? It's called the false master. With our training with REI, it's great. They really teach us not only the skills on how to do it, but how to teach. There's all these different trainings that we go through, and we learn about different kinds of students. We call them participants. And one of them is the false master. I freely admit I've been that guy who you show up at a class, and maybe your girlfriend's like, hey, let's go do this thing. And you think, I know how to do that already. Mm -hmm. So you show up, and you think you know how to do it. And you end up being the worst student because you're right. not open to making mistakes. You want to look cool in front of the instructor. You want to look cool in front of the other participants. And you end up learning the least. That person a lot of times ends up being the worst or, you know, the progressing the least. It's mm -hmm. that person that has the beginner's mind that can be like, hey, I've never done this. I don't care. I'm just going to learn and I'm going to make mistakes as I go. So the false master is someone that you definitely have to look for and always be giving them more. Like, hey, look, dude, you know what you're doing? Okay, cool. Let me see you do that. And again, the expectation is that 
it's a ride, that this is this nice thing, they're on vacation, or they're going to do this thing on Saturday, and we're going to mountain bike, and everything's going to be awesome, or they're going to go kayaking, and they're going to stay dry, and they're going to see a dolphin, um, you know, or, or a whale or something, or catch a wave even. So what I try to do in the beginning is to lower that expectation, and the idea is that you're going to progress, you're going to learn no matter what. So even if you don't make it through the surf, if you get wet, if you fall off your board, if you fall off your kayak, we're going to use that as an opportunity to, hey, so how do we rescue? How do we get you back on the kayak? Or if nobody was here, how would you get yourself back on? Again, if we were surfing and you can't make it out, what can we do next time? Or how can we work on arm strength? With stand-up paddleboarding, people fall off all the time. And it's a great opportunity all to learn how to get back on. We'll actually kind of force people to fall off. Like, hey, look, you're standing on your board. That's great. Now do this. Now let's turn around this. <laughs> now let's try to do it from the back of the board and into the point of failure. Right. And so once they fail, now it's an opportunity. Like, hey, what happened? And that's good. Now let's work on getting back on the board. Something people could remember as a student, this just came to mind with you mentioning these things, is try to find the part of the activity you're not good at and the points where you will fail because what better time to make a mistake than when you have an instructor there Mm -hmm. who can help you improve. Absolutely. But you're mentioning the false master thing and I think that's something we all have to be really careful about because what you do when you take on that concept about yourself is you close yourself off from being able to learn anything because what you're trying to accomplish that day shifts from I'm going to learn how to do this activity to I need to prove that I already know how to do this activity Mm -hmm. and your focus is always ego based Mm -hmm. and then it's really hard for you to chip that away and teach those people things. Do you have tricks you've learned on how to deal with those people? The main thing is I try to identify them early. Mm-hmm. There's always something somebody can learn. So if somebody is really progressing or is, hey, I already know how to do this. Now you're going to do this and this is going to be twice as hard. Mm-hmm. You can't do that? Okay, well, let's go back. And so I try to check their ego a bit in terms of pushing them to see how far they can go. The other thing I'll do is I'll make them lead. I'm like, hey, so John here, he's doing really good. Why don't you take this out or why don't you show us how to do that? Enlisting them as my helper. In terms of the false master, I'll try to either push them or make them part of my team, get them on board. Because I've been in classes where I've had that guy and he's in the corner, he's in the back, like, you know, snickering and stuff. I've had it when I teach backcountry navigation. There's a lot of technical things and you'll have a couple come and one of them will kind of know how to do it and they'll be coming with the other person. They'll be kind of in the back, like, I don't need to know this. But then I'll push them and say, hey, well, what about this? Because I do know more than they do. And so I'll keep asking them questions about, you know, what do you really know? It's a funny thing, right? Because we're really bad at assessing our own competency Mm -hmm. and things. Like in experiences I've had, I've noticed that if you hand somebody a rope who doesn't know anything about a rope, they have an assumption that they know what to do with a rope. And so maybe they will embark on a trail or some sort of canyon that has technical needs for a rope and then realize when they reach the point that they need to use the rope that they have no idea what Mm -hmm. to do with it. But for some reason prior to that moment, they don't think at their house like, well, let me make sure I know what to do Mm -hmm. when I get there. They discover it in the field. So one of the things you probably have to do is try to assess for people what their skill level is because what they tell you is that what you at the beginning of the class do you get people to explain like okay I'm a beginner at this or I have this experience Mm -hmm. with this and then you try to parse what you think the reality of that information is yes and we call it assessment and also Mm -hmm. comfort so what I found is especially with stand-up paddleboarding people come up to me and they'll have their release that they've signed and I'll say what's your experience and they'll say I have none and they kind of look sheepishly and I'll go great this is the perfect place for you this is totally for beginners and then at the start of the class I talk about this is a beginning class this is a skills class the goal of this class is you're going to be able to paddle 
on your own. You're going to be able to kayak on your own or mountain bike on your own. And sure enough, in two or three hours, they are. I like to set the table of this mm-hmm. is a beginning class. I also set the table in the beginning for those false masters, the partner who's come with a beginner. And I say, look, this is like that first ski lesson. This is skills. We're going to start from step one. To kind of give heads up to that person out there that's thinking, I've done this three times already. To be mm-hmm. like, hey, dude, just hang. This is for beginners. You know, we're not going to jump ahead too far. Mm-hmm. One personal experience in terms of kind of pushing yourself was going back to stand-up paddleboard surfing. I'm a pretty good surfer. And when I saw the stand-up paddleboard surfing, sub-surfing out there, I thought, this is cool. I really wanted to do it. And I really did it with an open mind where I went and I rented some boards and I got the paddle and I watched videos and I went out there and it was really fun being completely a loser, like being a completely beginner. <laughs> I would even tell people in the lineup, other surfers, I'd be like, I'm a total beginner. Like I'd keep away from me. And it was really fun just going back to the very beginning and just owning it, being a beginning sub surfer at that point. So that was kind of fun. And even again, in sub racing, when I started sub racing, I would tell people like, I'm a beginner. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. And so again, that's with age, I think, you know, letting go of that ego thing a bit. Mm-hmm. Just going, look, you know, I'm a beginner. Forgive me. What are some of the differences you've found moving to sub-surfing versus traditional board surfing? Yeah, that's a good question. I've kind of evolved from that, too. So one of the reasons I stopped surfing was, again, I was into bike racing. But the main reason I stopped surfing was the crowds, the intensity of it. Mm-hmm. I lived in Newport Beach, you know, in 54th Street, 56th Street, Newport Beach. That was like the epicenter of intense surfing in Orange County. And I was one of those guys out there. It was great. It was a great time to do it. But I was getting really sick of fighting with the crowd and having to be really charging hard every day. I was getting kind of sick of it. When I started subsurfing, the cool thing about subsurfing is that you can surf someplace where there's nobody. You know, there's nobody there. You can find a wave that no one's on. You can surf a wave that nobody really wants, and it's a lot of fun. And I really had a good time with that because I don't like the crowds. I don't like sitting in the crowds and fighting with the crowds. I'm really done with that. So subsurfing, you can be further out. You can catch a wave that nobody really wants and have a good time. I've actually stopped traditional subsurfing. And the reason being is that the subsurfing scene, it seems like the boards have gotten shorter and shorter. So they're almost turning into surfboards. Right. So you see these <laughs> subsurfers and they're out there and their board is so short. They're in shin deep water. You know, they're sunk down on their boards. And they're catching a wave. And now once they've caught a wave, they're trying to do short board maneuvers, but yet they're on a pretty big board. So what I've started doing is surf my race board. So I have a 14-foot race board that I race on. And what I really enjoy is going out for a paddle, like a six-mile paddle, and I'll find some great little break that no one's on, and I'll surf it on my race board. And it's a real challenge to surf a 14-foot race board. You can't do anything. You just kind of cruise, but it's really fun. And again, I fall, and it's really challenging. It's really great practice for my sup racing where you're in the ocean and you have to turn and you have to come in and out of the surf zone. So just doing a surf session on my race board to me is much more fun than trying to do shortboard surfing on a surfing sup. I've kind of gone back to just shortboard surfing. Like if I'm going to be in the lineup, I'm just going to have my shortboard. I'll be with my kids and I'll have my regular surfboard and surf or I'll be on my race board. I'll be at Malibu or Doheny State Park in Orange County or even San Onofre. You guys are doing that like mm-hmm. on a race board. And it's kind of, there's no pressure. You stand there and just kind of old school and just kind of cruise in. And so I really enjoyed surfing on my racing stuff. I know stand-up paddleboarding is getting more popular, but it just dawned on me that perhaps someone listening isn't familiar mm-hmm. with how stand-up paddleboards differ from surfboards. Okay. Do you want to give a quick explainer for those people? Yeah, so SUP, stand-up paddleboard. The sport is so new that the name isn't even official. There's different kinds of stand-up paddleboards. There's the all-around kind. You know, it's like 9, 6 maybe, or 10 feet, 11 feet. And that's a board that you could just stand up and cruise around the marina. You could actually be in the ocean. You could surf with it. Then there's 
stand-up paddle racing. And that scene is really fun, is really growing. And it's kind of like doing a 10K or a half marathon in the ocean. Some of the races you start on the beach and they blow the horn and there's 100 guys and you run into the surf and jump on your board and paddle through the waves and do a course out in the ocean. And then the cool thing is you surf a wave back in. So there's maybe 20 guys trying to surf the same wave <laughs> back into the shore. You jump off your board and run out to the finish line. And that's really fun. The first time I saw subsurfing was a, a race called the Battle of the Paddle. They don't have that anymore. It's called Pacific Paddle Games. And this was at Doheny State Park in Orange County. And it was just the coolest thing because it combined everything I loved. It was bike racing and running and surfing all at the same time. And demolition derby where you had these guys, amazing <laughs> professional guys, running into the water, jumping on their boards, going over the biggest waves, turning around and actually surfing a wave back in. And they'd be banging around and people would be falling. So it was a lot of fun. So that's the racing fitness side, which is great. It's a great workout. And then again, there's the surfing side where people go out on a longer board, maybe a, a 9.6 or I was surfing in Venice this morning, just south of Venice Pier. And there were some guys on short sub surfing boards that were just over eight feet. And so they were able to catch waves that none of the surfers could catch. And they were able to you know, have a good time surfing. So that's the other part. It's called sub surfing. And then there's the touring racing scene. For me, the racing's fun. The training is really fun. But I really enjoy, especially coming from kind of the chaos of riding my bike and the cars and people getting hit and just the craziness of it, where my morning workout will be, I'll drive down to Santa Monica, I'll have my racing board. It'll just be this beautiful morning. I'll paddle out through the surf and I'll do like a workout. Like I'm really training hard. I've got my heart rate monitor and I'm really like going at a good pace to train. I'll come across like a pot of dolphins. I'll stop hanging out with the dolphins for a while. I mean, this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Then I'll find like a little peak. Now my training session has turned into a surfing session and I'll just surf for a bit, fall off. I'm hot, so it doesn't matter. And I'll have fun in the surf and then I'll turn around and come back and do another half hour of kind of hard paddling and surf a wave back in. And it's just awesome out there. It's dead quiet. You're just out there alone with your own thoughts and the dolphins. I think about how awesome and peaceful it is as opposed to being on the bike. And when I run, you know, when the car's going by and stuff, you're just out there. And I'm combining all the cool things I like, you know, like a tempo workout, hanging with dolphins and surfing. <laughs> All the things you, know, you like, yeah, hanging with dolphins. Yeah, yeah, you see the craziest <laughs> things out there. So that's what I'm really at right now is, is that those kinds of workouts. So mentioning dolphins, a finned animal that everyone likes in the ocean, I know that as a person who teaches people to surf and sup, you have to answer a lot of shark questions, mm -hmm. I guarantee you. So what do you want everyone right now listening to know about all their shark concerns? If you're on a stand-up paddleboard, I wouldn't be concerned. When I'm out there on my paddleboard, I figure I'm a big thing and I'm making a pretty smooth motion through the water. I also have a big stick in my hand and also I can <laughs> see what's happening. I've seen sharks out there and there's plenty of sharks out there and people get freaked out. My feeling is if it happens, it happens. And I don't think it's going to happen. One quote I really like is the, once you put your foot in the water, you are no longer the apex predator. Right. And again, that's one of the cool adventure parts of surfing and being in the ocean is this wild of one, I don't know if I'm going to make it out there. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the waves. I don't know if I'm going to step on a stingray. I don't know if there's going to be a shark out there. So those kind of risks are way more exciting to me than, hey, I'm going to ride up the coast highway on my bike and I hope I don't get hit from behind by some person texting. So to me, I kind of let that go. That said, I do see there's a lot of open ocean swimmers out there and they're splashing around. I honestly wouldn't do that. I mean, to me, that seems like you're kind of asking for it. When you're surfing, you look like a seal. When you're actually surfing on a shortboard, it's kind of different too because you're sitting there bobbing around paddling. And I've never seen any sharks attack anybody or heard about them in Santa Monica area, but they're definitely out there. So for me, I just accept it as a risk and head out there. Comparatively, it's a pretty small risk, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, it depends where you are. I mean, Australia, I'm going to be going to Hawaii next week with a friend. Mm -hmm. 
of surfing. And I've been reading about all the risks of jellyfish, of the coral. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, in terms of risk and sure enough sharks. But again, I think if you're smart, if you talk to lifeguard and you stay in the right area, yeah, it's pretty small risk. Do you find that a lot of students coming in ask you a lot of questions about sharks because they're worried about that, but then don't realize that they need to worry about hitting themselves with their board mm. or smashing into a reef or banging their face on rocks? Yeah, not so much sharks. People worry about getting seasick on kayaks, which... Really? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other thing, and that does happen a lot. When we do stand-up paddleboarding classes in Marina del Rey at Mother's Beach, and it's this great beach right there, one of the risks, and it's a real risk, especially in the summer time are the stingrays. There's these little stingrays and they pretty much carpet the shallows. If you step on them, the stingrays sting your ankle. They hit your ankle and people get stung all the time. And so part of my safety talk with my students there is, hey, look, we don't want to hit our head. We're going to be paddling on our knees. You know, watch out for this, the sun. Oh, by the way, there's these stingrays out there that we don't want to step on. So we're going to shuffle our feet. We're going to look down. And doing that talk, I need to make it pretty serious, but it can't be too serious because I've had people really freak out after hearing that, like, oh my gosh, there's stingrays. So we'll go down to the beach. We'll go down to the shoreline and I'll look and I'll be, hey, look, there's stingrays. And they'll kind of scoot away. But people get kind of rightfully afraid of the stingrays. Those of us who are a bit older still remember the Steve Irwin sure. experience, yeah. which yeah. was a freak occurrence, right? Because mm-hmm. he was essentially stung in or near the heart. That wasn't that right. the case, right? right? Which right. would be a pretty rare occurrence. Imagine most people are stung in the foot or ankle mm-hmm. or somewhere mm-hmm. in that region, yeah. right? Where, where the uh, venom is probably less worrisome. Yeah, and I think it was a big stingray that he got hit by. And these are these little ones, but still, they really hurt, and you have to deal with that. Right off of Venice, people get stung all the time. You're surfing a wave, you jump off your board onto the sand, and the stingray's right there, and you feel it, and hopefully it doesn't get you. It's the weirdest thing, though, because it's not the big thing. It's not that big shark out there that's going to mm-hmm. get you. It's the little thing. Well, so, and jellyfish, yeah. right? Right. Like I grew up in the South, we typically went to Florida for the beaches where jellyfish are often Mm -hmm. an issue. And the likelihood of a shark attacking you is pretty low, but I've been stung by many jellyfish Mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. They can get you in the face. Mm -hmm. They can get you any number of places that can make you miserable. Yeah. I think the water's pretty cold here. We haven't seen many jellyfish lately, but I know, again, I'll be going to Hawaii shortly and that's something I'm reading about Mm -hmm. and that's something I'm going to be heads up for. There's a bunch of different kinds of jellyfish that can get you. So you got to watch out for that. So you're teaching a number of activities right now. So you said stand-up paddleboard, surfing, Mm -hmm. kayaking, Mm -hmm. ocean kayaking, mountain biking. Let's stick with the three water sports for the time. If somebody had no experience with either of those, how would you kind of break it down for those people so that they could decide which one of those to give a try? What do you think Mm -hmm. people gain from those different activities that are different from each other? Well, I think somebody who just wants to get on the water and cruise around, kayaking is the way to go. It doesn't take much skill. With REI, we do whale watching. We're starting this winter, whale watching, kayaking, where we take people out of Redondo Beach and you see whales. It's pretty cool. So we can get people into kayaks and kayaking pretty quickly without much instruction. So if you wanted to just get on the ocean and cruise around, kayaking would be the way to go. I prefer standing up all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, surfing, skateboarding, stand-up paddleboarding. Standing up to me is way more fun because you can fall off. It's just more fun. (laughs) With the surfing, the understanding that it's going to take a long time. It's not like kayaking where I can just sit in a kayak and go. Surfing is a long, Mm -hmm. it's years. It's It's it's, a commitment. It's a commitment. I've been working with this beginning surfer uh, student right now for, we're going on three months and he can stand up now, but it's been a long time for him. And that's the right progression. It takes a long time to learn how to surf. It's not just the mechanics of paddling and standing up. It's the wave knowledge of 
being in the ocean, being able to see the wave, being able to turn around and catch the wave, you know, even being able to negotiate the crowd. And so there's a lot that goes on in surfing. There's exhaustion too. Oh yeah. That, so as I was telling you earlier, I've recently started surfing fairly regularly. And that was one of the things I never took into consideration, how exhausting mm-hmm. paddling out. You may be exhausted by the time you successfully paddle out. And so you might see a wave you can catch, but are you already too tired to catch it? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of being a waterman, the idea of I can do all the stuff in the water, just body surfing, just getting in the water and just playing in the surf. All that time spent is great time. I really like stand-up paddleboarding because for a beginner, it's challenging enough where you can't fall off and there's some adventure part to it in terms of, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make this. You know, it's a skill that you have to definitely learn, but pretty quickly you can be paddling and, you know, first we take them in the flat water in the marina Mm -hmm. and then they progress and then there's classes that go out in the ocean and we can take them through the surf zone and before you know it, somebody who just started stand-up paddleboarding now is paddling in the ocean and we're cruising through the kelp bed. To me, stand-up paddleboarding is kind of right between, you know, the surfing on one extreme and kayaking, which is almost like a ride. So the nice thing is you've kind of got a range for everybody's interest, mm-hmm. which is great because I'm sure a lot of people are here on vacation maybe that you run into mm-hmm. and then they just have a day, right? Mm-hmm. Or half a day to do something. And so you can kind of steer them in the direction that's going to give them the most reward right. For, right. for right. that half day right. or that day. So let's go back a little bit. We've talked about a lot of water stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to talk some more about your cycling. So you teach mountain biking now, but you got into cycling accidentally, mm-hmm. as we said earlier, and you said you got into racing, mm-hmm. correct? So let's talk about that a bit. What was it like when you transitioned from just a person that was cycling for fun to a person who was now competing against other people? It was kind of a weird thing. I was in high school at the time. I got a bike to get ride to school and to train for surfing. And I thought, this is great. The social part of cycling is, is really fun. That's a fun part of meeting people, hooking up and going for a ride and then having coffee afterwards. I was fortunate. The group in the Newport Beach area where I started riding with was a group of older folks. I was the young kid and they kind of adopted me, which was great. This was right before the 1984 Olympics. And one of the organizers of the 84 Olympics was in this group. And I didn't even know his name was Chuck. Anyway, (laughs) he was this great old guy. And he was putting on the Olympics for the cycling in Mission Viejo at the time. When the Olympics came around, I was able to get passes and see it. And it was just a cool thing. Even though I had started cycling just a year before, I was starting to race in the lower categories. And I was totally into it. I was training a ton. And And it was all street racing? All street racing, yeah. And I was doing the local club rides. And I just dove in head first. This is when I was, I had just turned 18. And Mr. Cotton was his name. He was able to make a call to the Olympic Training Center and the coaches in Colorado Springs and said, hey, look, this is this kid. He just started and he has potential. So I was invited to go to the Training Center in Colorado Springs for a few months and stay there and be tested. And after that, I went to an international race. Again, I had only been racing a year. Mm-hmm. And now I'm racing with guys that are pro cyclists and I had pictures of them on my wall. And it was an eye-opening experience. One thing while I was at the Olympic Training Center, this is when the testing was all coming out. The coaches at the time were all from Poland. All this Eastern European coaching system the United States had taken. And so they were doing lactic acid threshold. They were doing VO2 max. And this is in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. So this is all pretty cutting-edge stuff. And they would put us on these, they would call it the devil machine, like an ergometer, a stationary bike, and test you how hard you could go. Early on, they did a few tests on me. And they said, Michael, you're a good cyclist. You're a good athlete. But we can tell you now you're not going to be an elite cyclist. 
I was kind of heartbroken, but it was kind of nice. I was like, you know, that's fine. I'm going to go race for fun. I'm not going to be on a national team. I'm not going to be a pro cyclist. I'm just going to go race for fun. But they were able to tell right away in terms of my physiology that I didn't have the genes and whatever it took to be at the highest and highest level. The thing I always wonder about situations like that, because a certain amount of it is the physiology, right? And Mm -hmm. then a certain amount of it is just the attitude Mm -hmm. and the perseverance. And when you're told something like you'll never be at this elite level because you don't have the physiology for it, I wonder if that then helps it become a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm -hmm. or depending on the personality of the person, if the person's like, to hell with that, I'm going to prove that Mm -hmm. I can and then push through it. And so sometimes I wonder if that kind of data is beneficial or not right, in the end. Right, right. Like, do you think it changed your attitude? Yeah, it was also new to me. I don't think I had any big dreams. It was just like this mm-hmm. new thing. Like, hey, right. cool. And I think... It helped guide you somewhere else. It helped me guide me somewhere else and, and almost just take it as like, hey, this is cool. And I did end up racing at a pretty high level for 20 years and mm-hmm. it was fun. I actually did see some of my co-residents there and they were kind of just in the mix the whole time and they made a shot out of it. And Some of them went on and most of them didn't go on. I wasn't that upset about it and I kind of was able to let go a little bit. Probably my California surfing mentality probably didn't help because I was, you know, (laughs) know, and so I was like, yeah, that's fine. Okay. It's interesting. I also weighed a lot more in my cycling career. I wish I had lost weight before because it took me to actually do running to lose some good weight. I was carrying probably too much weight during my cycling career. And you were mentioning earlier, you said you have two sons and that you got them into Boy Scouts. Were Mm -hmm. you a scout when you were younger or are you one of the people who are like, well, I guess I'll get my kids into this. And so I'll get involved and then become a scout master Mm -hmm. later. I wasn't a scout. I wish I was. I was asking my parents like, why didn't you put me in? (laughs) Because now that I'm seeing it, it was like, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. So we had neighbors that their sons were in Cub Scouts. And so... They introduced us, so we put our boys in Cub Scouts, and I thought, this is awesome. Then I became quickly a a Cub Scout leader and thought this was super fun. And being a leader was really fun because you're just a clown. And again, there's Cub Scouts, which are from first grade to fifth grade. So the leaders kind of make the program, and I was a big goof. I was the Cub Master. And then when my boys graduated Cub Scouts, they became Boy Scouts, and then I became an assistant Scout Master. And Boy Scouts is kind of a whole different level, and it's a really great program where these boys learn leadership, they learn character, they learn values. They learn outdoor skills. Every summer, our troop goes on different high adventure trips where last summer we were in Zion doing canyoneering. Mm -hmm. Then we came back and we canoed around Catalina Island in these eight-man war canoes. The summer before, we were in the Adirondacks in upstate New York, canoe camping. We do backpacking trips. And so we do these pretty major, serious trips every summer. Every month, we do a camping trip. For the boys, it's great. They gain great experience, make good friends. And for me as a dad, it's awesome. It's now my chance to be kind of a Boy Scout. Again, I'm a leader, Mm -hmm. and I get to lead these boys and help them achieve their goals. Right now, my role in the Scout Troop is I'm the Eagle Rank Advisor. So these older boys become Eagle Scouts. And so I help them with their project and executing the project and finishing all the rank requirements to become an Eagle Scout. And when these 17, 16-year-old boys, young men, become Eagle Scouts, it's awesome to see the transformation. And these guys are ready to take on the world. I wish that a lot of the skills and knowledge that is imparted by a group like that would get naturally folded into school PE programs because I think there's so much valuable information there, especially whereas a society to a certain degree, we're kind of fearful of nature and separate ourselves from it in a way that does not benefit us or nature itself. And to fold those things into school programs, I think, would be so valuable. It's great that at least something like the Boy Scouts is something you could choose to join Mm -hmm. uh, to do that. They also recently have accepted girls as well, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that correct? So now you can be in Scouts despite your gender, right? Although they're still separated, they don't mix the genders, right? From what I understand. I'm curious to see how that plays out. 
from what I understand, I'm optimistic that that's going to be a good thing for families and it's just going to make scouting stronger. I think the key there in terms of how it's executed, making sure the boys are separate from the girls. Because when boys are separate, they behave differently and they can be free and they can just run around and be stupid and be boys. Once you mix girls and boys together, then everything changes. And so from what I understand, the scouts are going to call Scouting BSA now. They're going to have Boy Scouts for girls and that's going to be a separate troop with all girls. And there's going to be scout troops for boys and that's going to be all boys from what I understand. And to me, that seems like the right way to go. Because again, with the girls all together, they can be girls and they can be doing the program together. The boys can be separate doing the program as boys. And so I hope they execute it that way. So one of the things you mentioned early on is how you ended up finding that course at REI that taught you to be a SUP instructor. And you were saying how you kind of realized that a lot of what you were doing with Boy Scouts was already preparing you for that. Mm -hmm. And then your own past experiences gave you the skills and knowledge within those certain areas that you teach. But you also are teaching mountain biking. You're teaching map and compass. Am I missing anything? Did you mention anything else? Bear hangs. How to camp with bears. Oh, really? <laughs> I teach how to tie knots. Um, right, right, yeah. right. Trail running. We do trail running with REI. So once you became an instructor, how did REI help you develop the skills to be an instructor for all those different departments? Yeah, they've been great. My interview with them was pretty funny because I had no experience, official experience in being an outdoor instructor. And so when I interviewed, I was like, hey, look, I've been surfing my whole life. I've been stand-up paddleboarding for this log. I've been a scout leader. I've taken all these boys. I've planned trips. I've done all this backpacking. I've done all this cool stuff, but I've never done it officially as an instructor. And to RI's benefit, they were like, that's great. You know the skills. We can teach you how to teach. Part of our training is they have continual training for learning how to teach people how to do stuff outside. In terms of how to teach, how to progress somebody through a skill, a lot of risk management, which is a big part of it, you know, in terms of what today is. I know, that, you know, the wind and the, and, and the conditions and how to take people through a, a slightly risky activity and get them back safely. That's a big part of what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all wilderness first aid trained. Last week, we just did a training where we do simulations where, you know, our end of the year Christmas party, one of the first things we do is set up simulations. We come across somebody and they're lying there and, hey, what happened to you? And we have to diagnose and fix them and figure out how to help them or evacuate them. So that's kind of a continual thing that we are doing in terms of risk management with REI. But in terms of the outdoor school education, they're continually giving us training and we're mentoring each other a lot where a new instructor will shadow an instructor and learn how the progression starts. Learning backcountry navigation, I knew how to do it before, but by having to teach it, it's forced me to go back to step one and really do a lot of research and a lot of experimentation on how to teach backcountry navigation, the map and compass and the GPS. Probably help fill in some gaps also, right? That you had just in your own knowledge. Absolutely. And the cool thing is with map and compass, it's such cool old technology. You know, a map and a compass is so analog. And then on the other hand, we have all this GPS technology, which is changing really quickly. And so we have this super high tech stuff on the other side. I really get a kick out of, again, being a beginner. I'm like, hey, how can I learn everything I can about backcountry navigation and map and compass and GPS? And so I'm constantly on YouTube, checking out stuff and learning the new cool thing to do with Map and Compass. And so for the sub-coaching that you do, that is outside of REI, right? So that is a separate venture of your own? Right. So I do through subcoach.net. REI, we mostly do beginning. Mm -hmm. So most of those trips are a beginner, somebody who's never done anything. So I also do training, more fitness training and more sub-race coaching through subcoach.net. And so that's somebody who wants to get ready for a race. It's like, hey, look, let's get out there. Let's do intervals. It's almost like I'm a track coach. Let's practice going through the surf. Let's practice doing turns in the ocean 
and so you already had your own career going outside of all this and then you've decided to start teaching with REI started mm-hmm. coaching through SUP what do you gain from that other than what we've just spoken about before where it helps you develop your own skills and kind of relearn certain things what do you personally get from being a teacher and an instructor and a coach because the reward for that has got to be very different than just oh I want to be good at an mm-hmm. activity what drives a person to do that has got to be very different than that the reward is seeing that person that's a total beginner that person that's never sup before that's never mountain bike before and in two or three hours they're having an awesome time they want to buy a board they want to buy a mountain bike they want to do it again right away and they have the skills to do that every weekend i get that that's the main thing the other thing is it's completely opposite of my other work as a motion graphics designer as i'm sure you understand my career as a motion graphic designer i make title graphics for commercials and network promotions and movies and it's a great career i get to be creative but it entails me sitting in a dark room staring at a computer all day Mm -hmm. doing something that's subjective i think i'm pretty good at it i've been doing for a long time and it pays pretty well but it's a subjective thing where i'm creating a graphic i'm creating something to advertise a tv show or a movie or something maybe i don't believe in 100 percent, and it's never finished right Right. it's abandoned it's abandoned right right and i'm very fortunate to have the opportunities in the career that i've had as a motion graphic designer it's been awesome having this other thing come into my life has been great i get paid way way less (laughs) but at the end of the day i'm done which is great i get to be out in in nature and you get to see the end result of what you've done immediately in the people's eyes and their reactions right absolutely and that's the key. It's not some salty producer that has approved my graphic or maybe not. And again, as I get older, working in motion graphics, it's super fun, but it's a young man's game in terms of the hours, in terms of what the industry is doing. It's not very civilized. It's not very conducive to family life or having any kind of life beyond just being in that world. Having this other thing that I'm committed to doing on the weekends, it's kind of great because if I'm hired freelance or if I'm hired for a company, I have to say to them, look, I'll work for you all week, but on the weekends, I can't work. I'm going to be teaching people stand-up paddleboarding. Sorry. I think I lose opportunities for that, for sure, but at this point, I don't care. So it's kind of a nice excuse to have that out there. But for me, the balance is great. It's completely opposite of what I do during the week. So does any quick anecdote or story pop to mind? Anything stand out in your mind as a really memorable moment where you saw a change in a person or... Just something happened that made you realize, yeah, this is why I do this. This is why this is worthwhile. It two kind of pop out right away where I was teaching stand-up paddleboarding. We were in Marina del Rey in the flat water, and we get a lot, all sorts. And we were paddling kind of after doing the initial skills part. We kind of go for a little paddle down the channel, and that's kind of the fun part. During that time, I try to talk to people and, hey, what do you do for a living? Or, you know, what do you think about this? And I'm paddling next to this woman, and she's an older gal, and she's crying. And I said, are you okay? Can I help you? And she said... I'm so emotional right now. I'm so happy. I've lost almost 100 pounds. A year ago, I saw people stand up paddleboarding, and I said, I want to do that. And I dedicated myself to losing weight and trying to get into shape, and now I'm here stand up paddleboarding. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that is awesome. That is really cool that this was the culmination of her goal. Mm-hmm. And she looked great, and she was having a great time. That was pretty cool. Another experience happened, and this was recently, where my client that I'm teaching how to surf, Part of what I do when I'm out there with him is I sit next to him and we talk about what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a wave here. Let's go over here. Oh, here comes a wave. Here comes a set. Oh, let's move over here. Let's turn over here. And I'm kind of going through what's in my mind to try to get him to think about that. One thing with the way I teach surfing is I don't push people in. Like a lot of beginning surf instructors will actually, somebody will be lying on the board facing the beach, a wave will come, and the surf instructor literally would just push mm. and push them into the wave, and they'll stand up, and, oh, my gosh, I'm surfing. I don't like doing that because you're not learning anything, and that's not going to do any good. So with my students, it's like, hey, look, we're going to sit together like we're surfers and see the wave. You're going to turn around and catch it. You probably won't catch it, but suddenly you will, and then you're going to be really surfing, not just getting pushed in like a ride. Mm-hmm. So my student, he's really progressing well, but he doesn't feel comfortable in the water reading the surf. 
when a good wave comes and I'm with him, I catch the wave. I'm a surfer. I, I can't stand next <laughs> to my, my client the whole time and be like, dude, this is a great ride. I'm going to catch this wave. It's a set wave. You're not going to get it. I'm getting it. So I got this great wave. I surfed it in and now he's out there and I'm in knee deep water and he's pretty far out there. And it was such an awesome moment because he was alone. A set came and he paddled over to the peak, whipped his board around, paddled for it and stood up and surfed and like actually surfed the wave. And he was like so charged the whole time. And so that was great because it's like he did it on his own. I didn't have to be there with him. I didn't have to talk him through it. And I got a great wave before that. But seeing him actually catch a wave on his own, then I knew it's like, okay, we're good. He can catch a wave. He doesn't need me. Yeah. It's it's funny because leaving him probably inspired him a little bit Mm -hmm. to feel obligated to try harder. Right. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting approach there that seems like it could work really effectively. So we're getting close to wrapping this up. Okay. So what I want to do now is let people know where they can keep up with you, if they're interested in coaching lessons from you Mm -hmm. or instruction from you, where they can do that. If they just wanted to follow along, if you post pictures or if you do blog posts or anything online, anything you want to share where people can find you on the internet. Yeah. So you can contact me through my website, which is subcoach.net or my Instagram, which is m. Kelly Design, which is M-K-E-L-L-E-Y-D-E-S-I-G-N. And then I imagine if you go to the REI school and you get lucky, can people choose you as an instructor or do they just have to pick the activity and hope that you're attached to it? They just have to pick the activity. So yeah, you can also go to REI.com backslash learn and then the classes will come up and you can put in whether you want to do mountain biking or stand up paddleboarding or kayaking and you put in your location and it'll come up with the classes that are available in that area. A lot of times if it is stand-up paddleboarding, I'll be the instructor. And I think you could actually call the outdoor school office at the Manhattan Beach REI, and you could request me. Here's a question that just came to mind. If someone listening thought, oh, I'd be interested in becoming an instructor Mm -hmm. for REI, do you know what they would need to do to go about looking into that? They're always looking for instructors. The key is to be passionate about the outdoors and teaching and to know the skills. They'll teach you like they did me how to teach. The key thing is to become wilderness first aid trained and CPR first aid trained. The key is the wilderness first aid, and, and they don't hold those. Those are two-day classes. We actually teach those in conjunction with Knowles. So to be wilderness first aid trained and then applying it is the best thing. But again, I, you could go to the REI site and look for jobs, and it will come up with outdoor school instructors. So the different markets are always looking for good instructors. And they're happy with wilderness first aid. They don't require wilderness first responder worker course? Correct, okay. yeah. They love that, wilderness first responder if you can, but it's wilderness first aid is the mandatory one. Okay. So after you've hired your recertifications, REI pays for it, they pay for your time. But to get hired, you need to be already wilderness first aid. All right. And then what I always like to do is our last moment on the show is ask you if there's anything we haven't talked about you want to talk about or if you have a thought you'd like to leave everyone with. You know, the thought would be just to encourage people to get outside and try something new. So even if you've done running or cycling or surfing or something, just find something new and try it and be a beginner and have fun and have fun failing, learning something new outside. That seems to be an overarching topic today, which Mm -hmm. is be a beginner. And I think it's good advice is don't try to be the expert at everything. Find the thing that you're not good at, that you don't know anything about, and then let yourself be a beginner at it and then see what that brings to your life that otherwise it wouldn't have. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Absolutely. So thanks for meeting me out here. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up unless you have anything else you want to say. Nope. All right. Thanks, man. Cool. Thank you. Hey, 
And now we've reached that part of the show where I ask you to run to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 79 with Michael Kelly, and there you will find photographs of Michael in action and links to all of the topics we talked about on today's show. And while you're there on the internet, how about dropping us a line here at the show? You can get in touch with us a number of ways. Email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or send us a text or voicemail, 818 818- 9250106 and if you would like to do me and everyone here at the show a great big favor then go to your podcast purveyor of choice be sure to subscribe rate review and share this show with someone who will enjoy it this episode of the go get outside podcast was edited by griffin davis it was produced and recorded with additional editing by me, your host, Jason Milligan. And as always, it was brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show, come back March 1st for our largest roundtable yet. We will be speaking with seven members of the hiking club Trail Mothers about why it is important to them to get out together as mothers on the trail and how it has benefited not only them, but their children. March 1st, Trail Mothers. See you then.